Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm delighted to be chatting to Neil Gandhi. Neil has, I suppose, got the first chunk of his his mission out of the way. Two and a bit years ago, they came up with a plan to change the world. Neil sees strongly that capitalism is failing to deliver the benefits that it could do to society. And he's built a publicly listed business with purpose at its heart. His mission is to create a business that people compare to its peers and see that a public listed business with purpose at its core financially outperforms those that are just after a return on shareholder capital. So two years ago, he set out on the mission. They successfully floated the business four months ago. Um, They built that business with about 15 million revenue without spending any money on mergers and acquisitions. So a really interesting how do you set out to change the world? And he's got this vision for the future of, you know, how do you scale this business up to maybe 500 million and beyond, looking at the UK and Germany and the Nordic. So great conversation with Neil. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you for listening. So I'm Neil Gandhi. I'm the CEO of a company called The Panoply. And what's The Panoply? So The Panoply is a London Stock Exchange listed digital transformation company consultancy, helping our clients navigate the fourth industrial revolution. Who are your clients? Our clients are typically mid to large organizations, be they commercial, government, or not-for-profits, who are trying to work out what to do about the digital economy and trying to work out what to do about their own digital transformation needs. And it ranges anything from yeah, we own a management consultancy in the group that works with CEOs, helping them understand how they're going to transform their organizations from soup to nuts, right the way through to working with our clients on service design projects, through to writing cloud-native software to help them transition from an old legacy platform to a new modern platform, um, through to web front ends, content, and everything in between. Okay. And when did you flow? We floated on December 4th, 2018, almost two years to the day since we'd incorporated the company. And what turnover did you IPO? Historic numbers were 15.6 million revenue. That's a year to March with an analyst forecast to this, the March just gone, um, the year to March 31st of 20 million, just over 20 million. 30% growth. Yeah, and then we will announce our results. We know obviously know what they are, so we'll do a trading update in the next week or so. Um, but we're, right now we're feeling pretty good that we're in line with where the analysts thought we'd be. 
Very good. And and so you, the reason I wanted to get you on and talk about this is this because putting this business together and floating it has been an atypical mergers and acquisitions journey, hasn't it? You know, you've you found somebody to partner with who had the skills that you needed, and then the two of you've then gone and put this vehicle together. So perhaps you could tell people a bit more about that journey and what's your and what your vision is for the future. Okay, so I guess start with the vision. So. We think that if you look at the consultancy environment today and the landscape consultancy firms, it's dominated by some, you know, very, very large organizations, the Accentures, the IBM Global Services, the Capgeminis, and so on, who, who measure their headcounts in the hundreds of thousands and have become very slow, very bureaucratic, but also they've gotten themselves to the point where they really are not able to deliver in the way that clients are looking to deliver nowadays. And so... What we think they are is we think they're 20th century companies trying to solve a 21st century problem for clients. And so the opportunity is to create a 21st century company to solve 21st century problems. And that then relates to how you organize yourself, what your business model is, why that's different and so on. So that's the opportunity. In terms of our vision though, what we're looking to do is to create a purpose-driven public company. And the reason we want to do that is because we believe in our hearts that by embedding purpose at the very core of the organization, we believe we'll end up delivering better financial results. Doing that within realms of being a public company means that you absolutely have to then publish your results and you get compared with a peer group. And the big goal, the big prize for us is to, if we can prove that, if we can prove that a purpose-driven public company outperforms a peer group that are perhaps much more financially oriented, then actually we paved the way for other CEOs and other family teams to go off and do the same and perhaps pave the way for some of the larger organizations to truly embed purpose within their heart. And that, if you look at a legacy and a legacy we'd love to leave, that would be the legacy that we'd love to leave. How do you succinctly define the purpose with which you've built the business? So our purpose is to improve lives through technology. And that manifests itself in a number of ways. So at one end, it means that we are launching a program to reach into disadvantaged communities and give people who otherwise wouldn't have been given the chance a leg up into the IT industry. The technology industry, we think, is one of the most meritocratic out there, and so we want to do that. But at the other end, it's also taking a socially responsible attitude to all the work that we do around automation. So a lot of the work we do, a lot of the software that we write, we know that we're part of an efficiency drive or return on investment. And underneath the phrase return on investment is often someone's job, someone's livelihood, you know, someone's mortgage, um, someone's family life. And so we, we don't want to be part of the problem. We think one of the problems to date has been our industry and many, and many others in the relentless pursuit of ROI have kind of forgotten the human stories that sit underneath that. So what we want to do is be part of the solution. So you take our robotic process automation business today, we're actively working with our clients to retrain the individuals who are impacted by the robotic process automation software that we deploy. So uh, an example will be we're working with a, an educational establishment, large ed educational establishment. We're working with the HR team and we're retraining HR administrators to become RPA business analysts. And that's how we think you do it in, in a responsible way. So that when, so when we say improving lives through technology, we kind of do it at both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, you've taken somebody who has a, who has a job as an HR administrator, you know, that's uh, yes, it, you have some skills, but you know, that's not a career. Whereas an RPA analyst 
is it just a change in title or does one job actually get paid significantly more than the other, which is what I think probably happens. Yeah, you know, one job gets paid significantly more than the other. You take somebody that's got knowledge of HR processes and turn them into a skilled RPA business analyst, their career has just stepped up several gears in a matter of weeks. And that, that for us is being socially responsible in how you deliver ROI for a client. And well, it's, it's fascinating because I, I spoke at um, a happy workplace event in Ireland last week in Dublin, and I made that point really at the, at the event, which is you can run a business any way you like, but you have the opportunity for no cost to impact positively people's lives if you just set that out at the beginning to, to be part of your mission. It's also actually financially, it's a better business. So, you know, if we hadn't taken that attitude, we would have left money on the table because there's a retraining opportunity, which we charge for. You know, it's not given away for free. It's not charity. But also your clients, you know, you go and say to your clients, look, you've come to us because you want a solution to the problem and you believe this problem is automation. And they are then left with another problem, which is what to do with the people that that puts out of work. And so it's financially valuable to you, but also there's just a sort of, it doesn't leave them with a hole in their heart. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like they've got that sort of financial motive to do something, but you solve you solve not only their primary problem, but the problem that solving that problem then gives them if you, if you can't do the whole thing. Absolutely. And, you know, and if you look at, and it ends up being very political, right? and I guess it is, but you look at society to date and the way you've got massive income disparity and you've got all the problems that, you know, fracturing of society as you see it today, a lot of that, I think, has been because business has externalised some of their costs. So okay, throw some people out of work, automate, brilliant, great return on investment, good shareholder value, fantastic. But actually all you've done is you've pushed the cost of that problem out onto the government typically um, to resolve. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we are where we are. Whereas I think if you take it on board and say, I'm responsible for making sure that you know, not only do I deliver great shareholder returns, but I also am responsible for making sure that the people whose lives are impacted are impacted positively rather than negatively, then, you know, everyone, everyone's left better off and society's left better off as well. So you've created that purpose. How did you then go and build your £15 million worth of revenue? Because on day one, I mean, you did have some of it because you brought uh, one of your own businesses into the group, didn't you? So I brought about £5 million in revenue into the group to start with. But what we decided to do, so, so the first thing was had the idea and then in order to execute on the idea, I absolutely knew that an IPO was critical. We're not here to create a small business. We're here to make an impact. And the bigger we become, the more impact we can have. And, and frankly, if we're a 20 million pound, 30 million pound, 40 million pound company, no one's gonna sit up and listen to what we're saying. If we measure our revenue in hundreds of millions and beyond, more and more people will listen to what we've got to say. And maybe we will have that impact that we need to have. So we always knew that an IPO was absolutely critical on an M&A business like we are. It was critical to get it off the ground. So the first thing I did is I looked for a, a co-founder, a partner who understood the IPO process. And, and in doing so, I found Ollie Rigby. Ollie had worked on the advisory side and had IPO'd something like 12 to 15 companies by the time he was 32 or 33 or something. And I thought, you know, 
I've never IPO'd a company. There are going to be bumps in the road that I don't know about yet. And I thought, well, Ollie's going to know how to deal with those bumps in the road because he's seen so many, done it so many times. And actually, it was an inspired choice. Couldn't have done it without Ollie. So he, we, he came on board formally in December and we incorporated the company in December of 16. And then it was interesting because what, what we also knew was in order to execute on our vision and what we were looking to do, we couldn't be private equity backed. Because the minute we took money from anybody else, our purpose would get diluted. Because you know, what we're doing is quite audacious. And we knew that the, kind of, the world that operates in the way that it does today wouldn't embrace what we were saying particularly. So we knew we wanted to do this and we knew we wanted to do it without any money. So then that begs the question, how do you, how do you <laughs> put together a group of companies and IPO it without any money uh, to go buy the companies in the first place? And, and what we did is for the month of December 16, because I was bringing my own company in, I became the seller and Ollie became the buyer. And we kind of basically negotiated with each other for a month where he's trying to come up with answers of how, how, do we, how do we bring your company into the group without me giving you any money? And so he starts with things like, you know, well, maybe you'll come in, you'll get a share of the IPO and you'll pay a service charge. And I'm saying, I'm not paying you a service charge because... <laughs> I've got a company. Why do I want to, why do I want to still own a company and pay you a service charge? No, go away. Well, if you think you can IPO, you go ahead and IPO. <laughs> it's an incredibly useful dynamic because in that we teased out what ended up being the solution, which was the conditional share purchase agreement. What the conditional share purchase agreement basically did was it was a fully binding share purchase agreement, full warranties, 140-page document, through all the lawyers, the whole lot of full-on SPA. But it was conditional on one thing. The one condition was it would complete on the day of an IPO. All the way leading up to the IPO, what we did with dividends was up to us, it was up to the individual companies. How they ran themselves was up to the individual companies. It wasn't at all onerous. And that had a two-year life. So that, that agreement was signed. The agreements were all signed in around about May of 16. And that, that, those agreements had a two-year life. So if we didn't get the IPO done within two years of signing that agreement, the agreements would simply fall away. And ownership would never have changed. Dividend treatment would never have changed. The only thing it would have cost the companies was um, their legal fees associated with getting the SPA signed and a two-year opportunity cost, if you like, of not being able to, you know, they wouldn't have been able to do anything else because these were binding agreements. So that was the model that we took. And it, it took that first month to kind of tease out that model. And it was incredibly helpful being both buyer and seller in the same conversation. And you didn't, ha so you created that from scratch. You weren't, you weren't trying to create this M&A roll up and float based on something that somebody else had already done. You, you created it completely from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, we created it from scratch. <laughs> Sat in a room and made it up for a month. Brilliant. And then you took it out and people, you took it out to people. Made it, you sat in a dark room for a month, made all this stuff up and then you took it, you took it out to people to see, to see whether other people bought this thing that you both, you and Ollie persuaded yourself over a space of four weeks was real and a compelling proposition. Yeah. So we started out in January and we did a, we did a list. So we used Judil and we said, right, we're looking for companies between three and 10 million of revenue, profitable, largely debt-free, 
in these service areas. We wrote, we, we, and we ended up using Judo. We started out with about, I think we started out with about four or five hundred companies. Then we went through four or five hundred websites and narrowed it down to about 180. Then we looked at them a bit more in a bit more detail at some of the financials and all the rest of it, and we narrowed it down to about 60. And so then we, through LinkedIn, you know, I'm super lucky having having been in technology services for pretty much all my career. I kind of was at least one or two steps removed, no more than one or two steps removed from pretty much everybody we wanted to talk to. So worked the network and met in the course of the first three months. So January to March 17, I'd say we met 30 or 40 companies. And then started the dialogue. And then through the course of the next two years, we met a total of 108 companies all across Europe and through the course of that, we were looking for companies that bought into our values. And we were very clear from day one who our, what our values were. We knew our purpose. We knew our vision. We were very clear that our values were entrepreneurial, creative, ego-free, which we kind of have renamed recently to ego aside because I guess no one's ego-free. <laughs> and conscious. And, and what we were doing is having assessed the companies already for their strategic fit and their numbers, we started to really assess people against their fit to our values. And that was the number one thing that we were looking for, is that these people that we liked and people we felt we could, we could work with and people who bought into conscious in particular. Conscious and ego side, ego side in particular has been really important to the dynamics of how the group would work moving forwards. I mean, ego side, that seems quite clear. Conscious, what does that mean in, in the entrepreneurs that you're talking to? What, what are you looking for? that they care a bit more than just the money. They're aware of society and they're aware of their impact on society. And they're, they're able to make decisions that balance up the needs of employees, clients, shareholders, suppliers, and the broader community at large that they operate within and balance all of their decisions upon all of those stakeholder needs rather than simply going down, down the road of, you know, shareholder value, which as I touched on earlier was what I think is part of the root of all evil today is that endless pursuit of shareholder return. It's so motivational. I get up every morning and think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and do a great day's work because I want to add shareholder value. It's just nothing has ever been so unmotivating to so many people ever. You look at our group. We, we, we're now circa 250 people that have come together very quickly, right? So the IPO was um, four months ago and we now have 250 employees. And so how do you, we have to coalesce everybody around a vision mm -hmm. from a company that, you know, our operating model, which is a whole different subject, which is a murmuration of Starlink, but our operating model leaves the companies largely to do their own thing. We have a governance layer, but they kind of left to do their own thing. So we've got this situation where we now have eight companies in the group eight groups of employees who all come together, who all, you know, join different entities. Those entities have their own values. We've always made sure that those entities' values kind of nicely dovetail into our own. But then how do you then galvanize them? Not, you know, some of them are founder shareholders and so there's some financial motivation. But the majority of them are not. So, you know, for us, it was really important to find something that everybody could kind of gather around and say, I want to be part of this. We did our financial year kickoff a couple of weeks ago 
And we brought together 45 people, which is the core management teams of all of the group companies. And we asked questions like, what's the organization you'd be really proud to have created when we asked this question in four or five years? And they mm-hmm. kind of mapped out what that looked like. And everyone completely buys into this idea of being a purpose-driven public company and what impact that can have in the world. And that, that I think, is motivational. I think anything else, some sort of financial thing isn't going to work for the most majority of people. Most people, whenever they do that list of, you know, what motivates you, money's down there seven or eight, as long as you've met your sort of Maslow hierarchy of needs. And, you know, I would guess most of your employees in the group are above that. But the, do you see those businesses in the, in the group? Do they keep their own identity? Yeah, no, no at the moment they, they keep their own identity. It's kind of this tight, loose configuration. So I talked about the murmuration of starlings. That's, yeah. For us, that's a, a wonderful image because it's a group of individual birds in that case that kind of fly independently yet together. Yeah. That responds instantly to you know, food sources or threat or whatever it might be with no identifiable command and control structure. So when we talked earlier about a 21st century business model to solve a 21st century problem, you know, that's what the clients are looking, they're not looking for a bureaucratic command and control type organization to help them solve the problems of fast moving technology because that's kind of it's the opposite of what they need so we think this the, the murmuration of starlings configuration where we just respond and form in the shape that the client needs almost instantly imperceptibly instantly without any seemingly kind of any kind of internal process in order to make that happen it's kind of what we're looking to create and having put this group of eight companies together now there must be uh the sum of the parts is greater than the whole where does the additional business come from where's the additional value in in putting the group together firstly just through scale so i said that the the analyst forecast for this year is over just over 20 million quid and we feel good about that so so suddenly they're part of a 20 million pound company today the analyst forecast for the current financial year is, is 25 or 26 so when we talk about the company today they're talking about being a 25 26 million pound revenue company with 3.3 million of EBITDA for the coming year so suddenly they're able to win bigger deals than the deals I've historically been able to win and we have examples of that already and then the other thing is just leveraging each other's capabilities so we launched this robotic process automation business at Blue Prism World which is obviously one of the big vendors Blue Prism World last week we did a round table with a bunch of not-for-profits around how RPA can be implemented in not-for-profits. We were only able to do that because Manifesto have a great reputation in not-for-profits. And so we were able to gather a group of people around us who, you know, we were leveraging Manifesto's kind of brand and contacts to create a whole new client base for a different part of the, the group. So you've launched a new business within the group. Yeah, so we have two ways of growing. So one way of growing is to acquire, and the other way of growing is to back management teams within the group. So this is, this, these were two people that came out of an existing group company who had a new idea and were prepared to run with it, and we backed it. So we basically financially backed them to, to get the new business up and running. And um, ah, it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal success. Fantastic. And so for those people who don't know what RPA is, what is it? 
So robotic process automation software effectively mimics a human user. Often in organizations, they have a, a series of disconnected systems that are based on old technology stacks. This is the old technology debt. They don't have open APIs. They're not able to write software that kind of integrates into it. And yet many, many organizations have that. So for an example would be a local authority. When a person moves house within a local authority, there's a whole bunch of systems that have to be updated as a consequence of that person moving house from council tax to waste to adult and children's services. None of these systems talk to each other. And so what happens at the moment is a human being has to go in and enter the data into three or four different places. What RPA software does is it mimics a human user, sits on top of all this software, does all this kind of entering data, taking data from somewhere else, doing something to it, entering it somewhere else in a totally automated way. So it takes the drudgery, as I think Blue Prism say, it takes the robot out of the human and allows companies to streamline a bunch of processes that the systems historically have not allowed them to streamline because this software hasn't existed. Also error-free, because no matter how good the human beings are, there's going to be an error rate of some percentage. But yeah, it's more accurate, it's more efficient, it takes the boredom out of jobs. It can be done 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, and, and, it, and it means that the people are freed up to do much more interesting higher value add work. So I'll give you the example earlier, but there's another example. We we're working with a health authority on automating a prescription service for, I think it's for rheumatology and cancer drugs. So these mm -hmm. are quite expensive drugs. They have to be checked and double checked against different systems. In this particular example, there are a group of pharmacists who literally, their job has become to go on, you know, use Excel spreadsheets get information, check it against one system, check it against another, and dispense the drugs. They literally are not talking to patients. And so the, the objective of this particular program of work is to automate the process so that these pharmacists can actually start talking to patients again. Which, God, I mean, if you've studied to be a pharmacist and all you're doing is checking data, that must be mind-numbing. Must be so demoralizing. Look, so... Uh... This year's planned, I mean, I guess another 30%, you hope, uh, more acquisitions. And now that you're a public company, you do the acquisitions on a different basis, I guess. Actually, we don't. So one of the things, the other thing that we, we had to come up with was an acquisition formula. So because of the way we did it, you had to work out how to divvy up the cake at the IPO, and it had to be fair. So we invented a, the acquisition formula. <laughs> I love it. It's like purpose, values, fairness, equality. Perfect. Love it. And so we, we came up with the, the, the acquisition formula and we still buy using exactly the same formula. Of course, nowadays the acquisitions are completed on the day itself rather than a conditional thing. So to some extent, they're a lot simpler than they were before. But yeah, the plans are more acquisitions. Um, we bought Disruption, um, which is a little bit of an odd acquisition. Disruption are a publisher. So they publish mm -hmm. a magazine, they have a weekly newsletter, they've got something like four and a half thousand articles behind a paywall. They just launched something called Disruption X, which is a, a membership program for heads of digital, digital heads of innovation, and so on. Takes them on study tours, takes them around, you know, they're going to Brompton, 
Bikes is their next one where they're Brompton have developed them. And they're the world's first folding electric bike in conjunction with Williams Formula One. So they go to that sort of stuff. Yeah, I did. Uh, I toured the Brompton factory last year. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was great. What a great place to work as well. And I walked through the door of many companies. In fact, you, you, you and I have done this together, haven't we, before? You walk through the door of a business and you just your heart sinks or it leaps with joy because you just get a sense of, you get the sense of that energy uh, in the business. And Brompton Bright's definitely that sort of, there's a buzz about the place. Yeah. And so we bought those guys because they have 88 of the FTSE 100 as, as readers. So now our group has a marketing platform that they could only dream of. Yeah. So now, we now know the heads of the head of transformation, the chief digital officer, head of innovation, the 88 of the FTSE 100 and many other organizations. And so you talked about these sort of, I suppose, lines of business, if you like, that you put together as the group when you started off your, you know, you had your, your dream team and you were trying to think, you know, what, what do I need where? What are the lines of business within the organization then? And have you filled them all? And other than this sort of marketing platform, do you have any other gaps? Yeah. So in the UK, so we, we, we're organizing ourselves around geographic clusters. So right. a UK cluster, a Nordic cluster, a German cluster, Benelux, and so on. In each region, we see five to seven companies. And, and, and so what we're looking to fill out is we're looking to fill out a, it starts on strategy, goes through very quickly there to service design, then to UX and UI, then and, and kind of consumer-facing, user-facing um, type design, then to cloud-native software development, then to data and analytics, then to um, machine learning and artificial intelligence, through to cybersecurity, through to DevOps. And that's kind of like, that's our jigsaw puzzle that we're looking to fill out in each geographic region. Um, so the UK... There's a bit more to go, and we're working on some of that. But we're not looking for that many acquisitions in the UK anymore. Okay. Uh, much more focus right now on Nordics and then Germany. Okay. And do you see uh, what, in the future, what do you think, you know, you get to that multi-million, several hundred million turnover? What, do you have a plan or do you have a, where you see the distribution of revenue? Is it just like wherever it takes you? A little bit. I think it's a bit more than that. So what we think is you, each geography needs a cluster of about 20 to 30 million revenue. And then you set it free to go and be whatever it can become. Right. right. You empower the local management to go off and create. Okay. There's no reason why these clusters can't become 100 million each. That's kind of how we see ourselves. And then, but we, what we want to see is no more than, as I say, five to seven companies in each cluster. And the reason for that is we think, going back to that murmuration of Stalin's, need to avoid massive processes is when you've got a founding group of people and you've got if you've got five companies that typically have two or three founding entrepreneurs that created them you end up with a core team of 10 to 15 people and the old navy seals thing is 15 people is the maximum team size where you can absolutely know you've got each other's backs yes complete trust exists so we don't want the core group to become much bigger than that you know, we know they're, they're aligned from a values perspective. We know that every company is coming in, a, in an equitable way. So if I'm supposed to help you, it helps that I know that you're on the same formula as me. And we know that they buy into the vision. And that, with that, that core group of great people, combined with 
the resources of being a public company should then be able to go and create something incredible in each region. For us, we then, then roll that out in multiple regions. So once we've done four, we'll figure out who, where the fifth one is. And one of the, I mean, one of the, one of the reasons we know, we know each, we've known each other for a long time, back, back in the infrastructure, IT infrastructure, many years ago when you were at Attendo and I was at Rackspace. But more recently, we've uh, collaborated on some nearshoring, particularly when I was at Pier 1, where we put, we put a team in Bulgaria. What are your thoughts on the dynamics in the marketplace there around sort of nearshoring, outsourcing, Brexit? You might not want to talk about Brexit, but anyway. <laughs> Hit Brexit head on, why not? You know, one of the things I think will happen is it will become harder to recruit talent here in the UK, technology-related talent in the UK. Yeah. Um, we're already seeing some of that. And I think as a consequence, nearshoring has an opportunity ahead of it. And nearshore as opposed to offshore, you know, you and I both know we, I did the same thing in India as well. And I think one of the benefits that we see of nearshore is it works when you're trying to deliver on an, in an agile way. So when you're trying to follow agile methodologies, it helps to have the time zone. It helps to have a much tighter cultural affinity and teams to work that way. So I think that's where Mitchell is continuing to fly. We see the Bulgarian business as the engine room of the whole group. So one of the reasons when a company comes into us, we're talking to them about acquiring them. One of the things we're talking to them about is how, how would you scale? So if we mm. gather together a group, group of people that have got 20 to 30 million revenue, with a goal to be 100 million, how are you going to scale that? And Nearshore becomes part of that conversation. We've got the engine room up and running. We can help you as being part of the group. So that's kind of where we see it. Has the stuff that you're delivering out of Bulgaria changed over time? Has the Bulgarian economy changed? Is it harder to attract certain types of people there than it used to be? It's become a more competitive landscape for people. People have recognized the benefits and so more and more entrants. You know, in terms of what we're seeing, we built a team of 50 people for Ricardo that included a robotics and machine learning team. So you know, the skills and capability are just getting more and more and more sophisticated. But it is more competitive. The business that we've, my old business that was acquired into the group, which was acquired on the same formula as everybody else, it had to be fair. That company has tremendous opportunities. It's a number one employer brand, or one of the top employer brands for technology stuff in Bulgaria. So it has this opportunity to recruit people in a way that most of many organizations don't. We had fantastic success using Alex and his team out in, uh, in Bulgaria. It was great. And News International, which has been a great win, growing like crazy with News Fab. A couple of questions that I ask everyone I managed to persuade to come and join me on the podcast. If you went back in time, what is it that you know now that would have just been super handy to have known then? I think... Confidence is quite important. <laughs> You've never struck me as a man lacking in confidence. Oh, I don't know. I, think, I don't think that's right. I think, you know, there's a lot of bravado. <laughs> okay. Perhaps in the past. But I don't think I was completely... I didn't have as much confidence in myself as I could have had. Okay. But truly, you know, when you believe it in yourself rather than... I mean, you know, lots of people, and myself included in years gone by, have been very good at bluffing it. But there's no substitute for the real thing. And then the other thing I would say is, probably goes alongside that, is just think bigger. You know, mm -hmm. the, the bigger the vision, the more chances actually you're going to have of success. Okay, very good. And are there any books or, is there a book or books that you've 
that you've read either currently or in the past that you think other people could benefit from picking up? So like years ago, I read The World is Flapped by Thomas Friedman. And that was quite an important book for me because it kind of made me stop worrying about borders. Uh-huh. So even now, you know, so, so, you know, we're talking about the panoply and we're saying, yeah, we're going to build a Nordic cluster, we're going to build a Benelux cluster, we're going to build a German cluster, and maybe we'll go elsewhere. And it doesn't phase me. And that was partly through reading that book, building an international business once before and, and not being phased by doing it again. So that, that's, I guess that was important. Today I read more for pleasure, um, I have to say. I read The Economist cover to cover. But apart from that, I read, I read for pleasure. I'm reading a, a curated collection of articles by A.A. A. Gill. Good fun. Really great reads. <laughs> Neil, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively not crap once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.